Well, good morning. I'm not in my usual attire today. I got my hands on a Jim Zorn jersey. So this is... uh... Now, I feel a little bit sheepish about wearing this because I feel like I'm kind of posing, pretending I'm a local person. And um, I really wanted to get into the Seahawks more, but I felt like I had to earn my right to uh, go crazy. But we did go crazy, and the Super Bowl was amazing. And and uh, so, but I still wasn't willing to wear a jersey. But uh, when uh, Jim handed me the jersey, I just thought, now I have this personal connection. And so I'm letting myself enter into your world, our world. Okay? So thank you for that. Uh, can we say a prayer first? Bow your heads and pray with me. God, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And I pray that you would illuminate uh, many good things and allow us to experience life and truth and change. Thank you for this time together. We open ourselves up to you and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are part two in our uh, five-part series on giving. Start with a story here. I drove 15 hours to Susie's parents' house from New York City. I drove to Lake Forest, Illinois. Anybody know Lake Forest? Yeah? To ask for Susie's hand in marriage. This was 18 years ago. I did that. And uh, when I showed up there, I was in a a pretty interesting place in life. Uh, There were MCATs I didn't take. Uh, There was a ministry call that I I had thrown myself into that didn't pay a nickel. And there were risks that I didn't know I was taking. And uh, why would I be surprised when 23-year-old me and 21-year-old Susie, both of us knowing nothing and everything, when Susie's dad says no? So he says no, and then being the quick, you know, uh, person I am, I said, well, then I'm not asking. I'm letting you know. (laughs) That's right. Uh... And then the next time I faced him face-to-face was in the bathroom after our engagement dinner with two families. And we happened to be washing our hands together in this very nice hotel bathroom. Uh, And uh, I turned to him and I said, how are you feeling? And he said, I feel plundered. What do you think? And he walked out of the bathroom. (laughs) And now I'm here hoping karma isn't the real thing. Now, uh, uh, about a couple of months into our marriage, Susie's dad asked me to write out a plan of action for how I was going to care for and love his daughter. And I did. When he received that plan, he thought it was all right. And he said, I'd like to add one more thing. Our family has a tradition of going on vacation between Christmas and New Year's every year. And uh, I would like your commitment that you and Susie will do that. We'll pay for everything, but you come. And so I was happy to do that. And that whole season from driving 15 hours to Susie's parents' house to uh, the, the first vacation that we took together in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, that was about two years. And you know what I learned during those two years? Very powerful realization. I realized that Susie was not mine. That she didn't belong to me. That I can't do anything I want with her. She is not an object. My job isn't to use her and exploit her for my own good, for my own benefit. She's not just a tool in my tool bag. She's not at my disposal. She's not there for my convenience or happiness. And another lesson that I learned was that when Susie's dad was walking her down the aisle... And I walked down to meet them, and he lifted the veil over her head, and then he gave her a kiss on the forehead, and then he hugged her, and then he shed tears, and then he took her hand, and he placed it in mine, and then he gave it a little shake for good measure. He realized that she wasn't his either. That for both of us, she was entrusted Somebody loves her and cares for her more than both of our loves combined. 
And he said, Peter, your job is to bring out, to nurture and facilitate the work of God in her life. You are not to use her or abuse her or exploit her. You are not to see through her. You are to love her and give yourself to her such that when I come back and I ask you about her, she has been well better off with you than without you. And the same goes for Susie's dad. She doesn't belong to either of us, that we are stewards and managers. And the same is also true for me. Susie doesn't own me. I'm not there to simply provide for her, for her to use me for security or for whatever reason so I might be convenient to have in her life. But her job is to serve me and to invest in me and to do well with me because somebody else loves me more than she could ever love me. Somebody else has vision and use for me better than she ever could. Now this guy... Right here, he is uh, probably the decade's most famous manager uh, from the hit show, uh, The Office. Oh, Michael Scott, I miss you. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says this, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church at Corinth that I just read from, his primary relationship to the church at Corinth was not that he was their master, was not that he had something that they didn't have and he was going to lord it over them, but simply that he has been entrusted with something that belongs solely to God. And his job was to be a conduit of the things that belonged to God. He was, in other words, a steward or a manager. And his job was to be found trustworthy by God, not by himself and not by the church at Corinth. Later on, he goes on to say, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what I think about me because God is my master. I am his servant. And by his word, I stand or fall. And he is able to make me stand. God's eyes are the eyes that are watching. And those are the only eyes that matter. I am his steward. A steward of the things that belong to him. Two things we're going to talk about today. Possession is ten tenths of the law. And second, there is a fear. Okay? First, possession is ten tenths of the law. Verse 14 says, 14 says this Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Now, there's a lot of giving and receiving in this passage. The master gives all this money and bags of gold or talents to these servants and then they do something with it and then they give it back and some other servant, he buries it in the ground and he gives back the same. And all this giving and taking, who actually is the only person in the story who owns anything? The master. Everybody else They're stewards. They're managers of things that belong to the master. Everything is God's wealth. Everything you have. Every breath belongs to God. Every shirt on your back. Every opportunity. Every friendship. Everything that you've ever thought was yours. It all belongs to God. Let me read you a few verses that underscore this in powerful ways. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10 and following. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given to you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. And finally, this is my very favorite verse that tells the truth of what we are trying to say here most humorously and succinctly. Psalm 50 verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Isn't it funny if God comes to you when he's hungry? Peter, I need a snack. I had this dilemma when I was pursuing Susie. I had this thought. You know, I was trying to be all uh, win her over, but at the same time, I wanted to be kind of, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, I wanted to be kind of uh, humble about it, you know? And so I used to think, I don't want Susie. I want what's best for Susie. And I kept going back and forth between pursuing her or maybe stepping out of the way if another guy came along that I thought might be better. And then I had this one thought that changed the game for me. You know what that thought is? I thought, no. I am what's best for Susie. I know her like nobody else. I have deep insight into her personality and her story. And nobody else can love her better than I could. Therefore, bottom line, Susie is mine. That was it. And that changed the game because I pursued her with a renewed strength, like an eagle soaring on her wings. And I, and I got her. Now, when I was... Uh, when I was uh, figuring Christianity out for myself, one of the thoughts that I kept tripping over over and over again was this thought, why is God so insecure? Why does he need our praise? Why does he need glory? Why is he so oriented towards himself? Is he insecure? Is he just like, just have issues? He's some kind of, Catholic person? What's wrong with him? Why would he create us just so we can love him? And if we don't, he's going to punish us? That whole deal just makes very little sense to me. And then I, I realized this. It's not that God is a glory hog. It's not that he loves glory. It's not that he has a need for credit. But he is a God of truth. He alone is worthy. Do you know what the word worship means? It stands for worth-ship. It means that God is worthy. 
and we are giving to him what he is actually worthy of. And if that doesn't convince you, let me ask you this. If you feel you are worthy, please stand up. I would like to meet you. And I would like to send you to Hollywood. You know why? Because Hollywood has seen fit that we, the people of America, deserve another Jesus movie. There's a new Jesus movie coming out. It's called The Son of God. And I saw the preview for it. And it just gave me, just, it, I was just cringing throughout the whole scene. You know why? Because there are all these very powerful encounters that Jesus has with people and conflict, and miracle moments, and post-miracle moments, and just kind of human moments. And in each scene, this actor who's playing Jesus fails miserably. Do you know why? Because the human mind is faulty. It cannot imagine what a perfect person uh, would look like in these scenarios. You know, when Jesus is with these Pharisees and there's this woman supposedly caught in adultery and he's riding on the ground and then the Pharisees are demanding an answer from him and from looking down, he looks up. What's the look on his face? What does his face look like? You don't know. I don't know. Hollywood doesn't know. Nobody knows because nobody is perfect. We have no idea what a perfect human being who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who is timeless, who is through and through the being of all beings, the king of all kings. At that moment, with all love and all power and all knowledge, when that person looks up, what does that face look like? We can't imagine it. That's why movie after movie after movie Hollywood fails, and forever they will fail. Because even if some director had some vague idea, the actor will fail. Because none of us are worthy. We don't have pure hearts. We don't know everything. You know, I have these memories of my parents, just expressions on their face, that they would have in response to some shenanigan on my part or some, you know, rebellious season or some retort or smart aleck comment. And I just would, I just, I just, it just burned in my mind the look on their faces. And now I have those same expressions on mine. I couldn't have it as a teenager. I couldn't. Because all the experience and love and knowledge that I bring to bear now relative to my children as a parent and the reaction and the facial expression that that creates, I couldn't mimic that. I couldn't imagine that as a kid. Let me ask you, are you worthy? Are you worthy of worship? Do you love with your whole heart? Are your motives pure? Do you have ultimate perspective on things? If you did, you know what you would do? You would come to earth to a people you love. And you would do what you had to do. And you would simply, without justification, die for their sins. That's all you would be able to do. Because you cannot understand, as a people, what it is to be God. God actually is the source of everything. He owns everything. And we have never owned a single thing. Your body does not belong to you. Opportunities do not belong to you. Money? Oh, please. What do you have that is yours? And that's the point that we start with. And then verse 15. To one 
he gave five bags of gold to another two bags and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, Christians love to misunderstand this notion. They love to say on the one hand that if you are poor, it means that you are spiritual. You know, we have spiritualized and sanctified poverty. And on the other extreme, we say if you are wealthy and you are healthy, that means God's favor is on you and you are blessed. It's a sign that you're living your life right. And here, Jesus says, no, it is God alone because everything belongs to him. He alone has the prerogative to decide who has what and how much and when, for what purpose. Everything that has to do with you and the things that you are a steward over, God has decided. And the human beings come to that and say, oh, I get it. So I don't have to worry about poverty. I don't have to worry about wealth. What I have is mine by God. So it's my right. And God said, nope, that's not yours either. Every which way we hear this truth, we keep twisting it because we fail to understand that God alone is the source and the owner and the master of everything. Less is not not evidence of inferiority and more is not evidence of superiority. And neither or the middle position justifies how you spend your resources. Because to the very end, everything belongs to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Name one thing. Name one thing that belongs to you. What do you own that's yours? I tried. I tried to think about it. And my list had zero things on it. Every trait in my personality, every good thing that happened, every physical possession, every friendship. You know, there's a a book called The Likeability Factor uh, written by an ex-Yahoo guru. And he says this, He says, you know, the most important trait that you can ever have is the trait of likability. Because likability is a single factor that affects people around you the most. If you are likable, doors will start opening. And he said this, he said, all of the most important decisions that's ever been made in your life were made by other people on your behalf. Like where you were born, where you lived, What school let you in? Who said yes to a date or a marriage proposal? Who said yes to a job? Or what customers decided to come in so that you can make a living and succeed as a small business owner? Every decision that's important that's been made in your life has been made by other people. We don't have things the way we think we do. We don't own things. We can't control as much as we think we do. What do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Everything has been given to us. And verse 27 really brings it home to this one key idea. Well then, this is the master speaking. He says, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Now, at first, this seems like sort of a random verse to focus on. But here's a really crucial idea in here. And this is getting at the master's uh, way of how he wants the job done. He says, oh, You were afraid? You couldn't do the job yourself? Well, I wasn't looking to you to do the job. I was looking to you to get the job done. And if you weren't going to do it, I don't care 
Who cares? You should have then given it to somebody else so that they would get the job done. You don't know how to invest my money? Great, give it to the bankers. They're professional investors. They know how to make money. That's why they're called bankers. Do you understand what the master is saying? He's saying, you are not the end game. Your job is not to be the end game, but the conduit. If you don't know the answer, at least start asking the questions. Why do you stop at yourself and say, ah, I'm stuck, I'm paralyzed, I can't, so I won't. And the master comes and says, you wicked servant. It's not yours. Why would you squat on it? Don't you have a sense of responsibility? I gave you a charge with the things that were mine. Even you are mine. You are my servant. You should have gotten the job done. And this whole idea of thinking is called uh, open source. Now, if you look at our church's mission statement, you'll see this phrase explained out. If you go to the back info table, you see a church playbook, and it explains it. If you go on our website, it's on the website. If you go to the membership class, we'll talk about what open source means. But here it is. Back in the day, people used to believe that you hire just a few experts to write a piece of software for you. Oh, you need to write papers? Let me hire a few very smart people, and they will write a program. We'll call it Microsoft Word. And you will use that piece of software to write your paper, and then you'll pay me for that software. But the quality of that software starts and ends with the very few programmers who were initially hired. And then somebody else came along and said, why should we limit the quality of the product to just those few experts? What if there are lots and lots of people who have great ideas also? Why don't we tap their expertise and allow their talents to shine through? And that started an open source revelation, a revolution. So for example, the premier example of what open source is, is Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia. It's not just a few smart people who know everything who are writing this online encyclopedia, but it's everybody. Anybody can go online, log on to Wikipedia, create an account, and contribute content to create pages for Wikipedia. So I checked. Our church doesn't have a Wikipedia page. There is no Evergreen Covenant Church on Mercer Island. Am I stuck? Do I have to call Wikipedia and say, is there an expert that can just take an hour of their life and write a page on Evergreen Covenant Church? No, we don't have to do that. I can log on and I can write up a wonderful page about how we are this 3,000 member mega church and it's just wonderful. And if you don't come, we're missing out. And then you can log in and you can say, what? Oh, Peter's a preacher. He's exaggerating. So let me fix that. And you can tweak that information because it's open source. The page is not limited to just one expert or two experts or three experts, but anybody can contribute content. That way, the whole community benefits from the hive mind. That's open source. God says, why Do you have to see yourself as the end game? Why would you limit your job of getting the job done to just you? Why do you think so small? Why are you closed? Why not open it up? Who else can help you? Instead of trying to have answers, why don't you start asking questions? Instead of doing everything, why don't you ask for a help? If you can't invest the money, give it to the bankers. If they don't do a good job, take the money back. Give it to somebody else. Focus on your role rather than the role becoming your identity. Open source, conduit. Here are a few verses that illustrate this idea. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, so that 
you can consume all of the blessings that I'm going to give to you for yourself. It is your job to enjoy the blessings just for yourself. Is that what Genesis says? It says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That is, you will be a conduit through which God blesses other people. You are not the end game. You are not the end consumer. You are not the end user. But your job is to channel God's blessings. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Why does God want you to have a job? So that you can have financial security for yourself? So that you can amass wealth? No. God says you work. You should work. So that when there is opportunity to give, you have something to give. Lest when the opportunity comes, you do not have anything to give. Your job is to give. And in order to give, you have to have something. And in order to have something, you have to have a job. But your end job is to give, not to have. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. As a pastor, as a minister in the church institution, I want to apologize for all of my fellow pastors and theologians who have shamefully misinterpreted and used this passage to manipulate and tease out tithes for the local church. That is not the intent of this passage whatsoever. You have heard it said, if you tithe, God will bless you. How do we know this? Because Malachi says so. Now, who was Malachi? Well, he was a prophet of the Lord. He's what we would call a minor prophet. You know, the other prophets aren't called major. Just these guys are called minor. If I ever die as a prophet, I want to be a prophet, not a major, minor prophet. But here we go. Malachi, minor prophet. The whole way that the storehouse thing worked was the temple that the Israelites worshipped in that also served as a clearinghouse, as a distribution center of goods so that they can give to those in the community, including foreigners and aliens among them who were in tough spots in life. Or if there was a drought or a famine that was affecting the Israelites, they would tap the storehouses And the storehouses in the temple would have an abundance of food waiting to be used for such a time as this if the people of God had been tithing. And what God is saying here is, if you would do your job and give back to God what God gave you, 10% back to the temple so that the temple can serve as a distribution center for goods to those who are in need, then you will not have need because the needs will be met. And preachers have used this passage to say, if you will tithe, to this local church, then God will bless you. Look, your windows of heaven will be open. It will pour out blessing till it overflows. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that that won't happen. I think God does bless, and there is a, a universal, powerful principle that we're tapping into when we learn how to be givers and how to be generous. But what I want to apologize for is it is wrong for churches to use this to tease out ties to the local church for its own sake. The church is a mission post. We exist just like we individuals do. The church as an institution exists so that it can serve. 
We exist so that we can do ministry. The word ministry means to give. And a minister is one who gives. This is why and how we justify all the resources that go into building this building. We just got the bad news that we have to replace our roof. You know what the estimate is? It's $100,000. And we are going to have to do it in the year 2015. We're going to have to do a special capital campaign to raise an extra $100,000 so that we don't have to sit with buckets in our midst. And why is $100,000 worth it? Because actual ministry is happening here in this place. It's not so that we can keep persisting as an organization. Who cares about the organization? There is a mission. The job isn't to have, but it's to give. It's to serve. It's to do good. We here at the church, we justify all of our expenses and the human resources and your time and talents. Because we serve as a spiritual home. We serve to remind people of God's love and God's truth. There's other organizations that we partner with to be a source of good and light and salt in this world. And if we don't do that, we should close our doors. And we should distribute our wealth in other ways. The reason we ask you to tithe, and I will ask you to tithe at the conclusion of my sermon, is because we are doing ministry here. But if we, the the moment we take our eyes off the ball, game over. It's game over. doesn't matter what jersey I'm wearing. And Luke 12, verse 48 says, From everyone who has been Given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Church, why do you exist? To be the end consumer? To be the end user of the blessings of God? Why do you have breath? Why do you have time? Why do you have opportunities? Why should you exist? Nobody will even know your name 50 years from now. Your great-grandchildren probably won't even know your name. I don't know my great-grandfather's name. Because you are a conduit. Because you are open source. You live to serve. Who alone is the source in God? And the rest of us are conduits. And lastly, there is a fear. There is a fear. Notice in verse 25. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. When I first read this, I thought, gosh, this master is harsh. And then I didn't even read the part that happens after this. He gets thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I don't want to go into what that means today. But notice something here. Nobody is just lazy. What's behind laziness? What does the servant say? I was afraid. There is a fear. All of us, we all have points at which we are lazy, we are passive, we are avoidant, we're in denial, we're delusional. It's our story and we're going to stick to it. But there is a fear behind these points of laziness in our life. Why won't you face it? Why won't you look at it? Why won't you do the good you know to do at that point in your life? Why? Why is everybody around you frustrated because you're so passive or avoidant or delusional? Why? And the answer is because you're afraid. There's a wonderful book. uh, In in the book, there's a title, uh, there's a chapter titled, Her Complaint is Not Content Free. And this chapter details out uh, the story of this couple who are married for many, many years. uh, And... uh, this 
husband for years refuses to take out the garbage on his own accord. And part of the deal in their relationship is she nags him every uh, week to take out the garbage. And she hates having to remind him to take out the garbage. And even after her first, third, you know, fourth reminder, he still won't do it. She has to nag, 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 nag until he finally takes out the garbage. And he keeps avoiding it. And all it takes 15 seconds to drag the trash can out to the curb. But he won't do it. And in one of their sessions, they had a breakthrough. And in one of their counseling sessions, the breakthrough was this. What they came to realize was that he had come to, uh, uh, taking out the garbage had come to symbolize his reluctance to grow up. He didn't want to be a man. He wanted to stay a boy. He didn't want to be a husband. He didn't want to be a dad. He hated having to work. He hated the feeling of the weight of his family's life on his shoulders. And the way that got channeled was through this passive aggressive resistance of not taking out the garbage. Behind that avoidance and apparent laziness was a fear. I want to remind you, church, that we want to serve, we want to give, and we want to get the job done beyond ourselves. We do. We love it when a plan comes together. We love doing good in this world. There's nothing that satisfies the heart more than when good gifts are given and it's received and it's effective. We love it. But why won't we do it? Why instead do we hoard? And why are we self-centered and short-sighted and reluctant and hard-grasped? Why? Why are we so white-knuckled with ourselves and with our stuff? We're not just that way. But it's because there is a fear. But in your heart of hearts, made in the image of God who is the giver, you want to be generous. You want to be a conduit. You want to be open. For in that image, you have been made. I started a uh, church in uh, Boston in the year 1999 uh, called High Rock Covenant Church. And uh, we started with about a dozen people, and it grew. And uh, at four and a half years, I uh, left the church and handed it over to an amazing pastor and leader named David Swaim. And the church over the last uh, you know, uh, decade and a half has blossomed into the cornerstone church of all of Boston land. It's an amazing church. There are about 900 people who attend on Sundays. And that's really, really big for Boston. Everything in Boston is small. And I'm so, so proud of this church. And I'm grateful for all of the faithful people there. There's also a church. After I left that church, I was sent out by that church to start a similar church in New York City uh, called Queens West Covenant Church. And it was exciting at first. Uh, we started with about five people, and then uh, within the first 10 months, it grew to 147 people. We saw uh, non-Christians except Christ almost every single week for the first year. It was an amazing season of ministry over there at the YWCA that we were meeting in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then I just got a phone call last year uh, from the chair of the church letting me know, they didn't, he didn't want me to hear it from somebody else, that they had decided to close the church. And it was one of the hardest things I had ever, I just, it, I felt like I got punched in the gut. And I just, you know, those, that pain that feels like it's never going to go away. And I can't believe they closed. In February, uh, a year ago, they closed their doors. And I'm deeply saddened by this. And in my mind, there are just fears and regrets and just hindsight stuff. It just floods my mind. And then I went on to work for the covenant for a term for four years. And then now I feel myself here at this church, at Evergreen Covenant Church with you all. And here's what I realize as I think about 
the ministry season and seasons in my life. Things like money. I used to think about money as this solid thing, this one thing that's tangible thing that I get to possess and hold on to. And if I hold on to it, I'll always have it when I need it. But it's not true. Money is more like a river. It's just flowing. It's moving. It's amorphous. And the opportunity to use that money changes. The value of that money, it changes. The form in which that money is held changes. And then relationships. They morph over time. It changes. And there are surprising relationships that come upon me. And I had no idea that this person existed. And now they're the, one of the people I want to spend the most times with. How does that happen? Or opportunities I had. And then they disappear. And then new ones come. And my body. I thought it's my body. I get to keep this. No, but the body is changing. I was called old this week by accident. If somebody calls me old on purpose, who cares? But by accident? What's going on? I think I crossed over this week. I want to remind you of a few things uh, related to our church as we close. Right now, there is an amazing opportunity to build this church and to create a spiritual community, a missional base out of which we do life and God and good things in this world. You need a base out of which to do it. So if you go on the website, it says, we want this church to be home and home base. That's okay. If this is your home, that's great. But if you need a home base out of which to do ministry because you're called elsewhere, but you want this to be home, that's fantastic. We want to be a conduit of God's work in this area. And I think about this, and I realize just how much I love the fact that we're on Mercer Island. We're straddling the east side and Seattle. And we're right in the middle, conveniently located between the northern areas and the southern areas, like Kirkland and Renton. I absolutely love it, how strategic we are. The youth group pastors in our denomination monthly meet at our church. You know why? Because it's central and it's strategic. And when the past covenant pastors get together, you know where they want to meet? At our church, because it's strategic and it's convenient. I think about all of the people that we are able to reach based out of Mercer Island. I think, what a wonderful opportunity. We own a building. We don't have a mortgage. We have a wonderful history, a stream that's been flowing into which we can all step into. Experience nourishment. How wonderful is that? And we have a wonderful staff that's working to connect past and future. How great is that? I think this home is worthy of your investment. I think we can be a distribution center for the work of God in our area. And we have another on top of that, a rare opportunity to revitalize a church that was headed south. If I can speak it bluntly that way, if you look at the graphs for our church, all the vitals are beginning to point down. It was not looking good. And now we're beginning to see some real signs of life. Is the tanker actually turning? Is it possible? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. We get to see the story of God continue. We get to see redemption in real time. I get to have front row seats to God doing that work. And I'm so thankful for that opportunity. So I want to ask you to give to this church. You know, the statistics on evangelicals who attend church is that only about 3% of church-going Christians tithe. 3%. That's the freshest statistic out there right now. Please tithe to this church. Not because I'm manipulating you, but because with your own eyes, you see your life, yourself as a conduit of the good good things of God. And you want to partner with other conduits. And you want this home base to be a distribution center of the blessings of God. So give. And we will work hard to earn your 
trust. This parable that Jesus tells, ultimately though, it's not about us. It's not about the master or the talents in the story, but really is about himself. Jesus said, everything you have ever heard from me, all the Bible you've ever read, it's all ultimately about me. And it's Jesus Christ, whom God entrusted his creation to. God said, Jesus, my son, my servant, here is Peter. Save him, lead him, guide him, use him, put your spirit in him, forgive him of all of his sins, cover him in your blood. I entrust him into your good hands. Do with him as you see fit. And God examined Jesus and found him faithful. And we will be faithful because Jesus is faithful in our life. And the points of laziness behind which our fears hide, Jesus himself will address. And I invite you to see yourselves as servants of the Lord, but not on your own, with Jesus working in your life. He is the one who laid down his life. He's the one who gave up his dreams, his rights, his pride, his fears to save us, to reach us. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we give all ourselves to you because you alone are worthy of our lives. You alone have vision and direction for us. And we have so foolishly held on to ourselves and our resources and our lives, thinking that we are wise enough, thinking that we are able to do better with it than you can. So we give ourselves to you. We open our hearts to you. Do with us as you will. Be our master. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.